Welcome back to the Bill Bennett Show, the podcast taking a deeper look at the current administration. We're helping you today, as we do other times, to translate Trump. Who is this guy? What does it mean? What does he mean? Coming up on this episode, we have another edition of my ongoing conversation with Steve Wynn, chairman and CEO of Wynn Resorts, and he's also the finance chair of the Republican National Committee and, of course, a close friend of the president. We'll talk more about the benefits of the new tax bill, and we'll take a look at the Trump presidency one year in. We'll continue our conversation with Joel Farkas, director of the American Strategy Group. He'll join us to discuss the elite's disrespect and disregard for America's small towns and rural areas. I'm going to tee off on an article that suggests one year in uh, that uh, the Trump states, the states that supported Trump, the red states, are doing very, very well in the economy. The blue states, not so well. We'll explain why. Uh, We will also welcome historian Neil Ferguson. Uh, He has a new book called The Square and the Tower. Joining me this morning uh, for this podcast is Claude Jennings. Uh, Claude and I have worked together before on our radio show, Morning in America. And uh, I'm delighted that Claude is stepping in. He's taking over uh, for our friend Chris Beach, who is becoming the chief speechwriter for Scott Pruitt. Well, look at that. Yeah. See what what happens? See what happens? (laughs) At the Environmental Protection Agency. So it's a pleasure to have Claude. I wrote Chris a note. I'm going to make this public. Chris, his first day of employment, quote, with the government is today. And at the time of recording, it's Monday. And um, he's a huge Minnesota Vikings fan. So I wrote him this morning. And I said, you know, if you'd stuck with me, you'd have a job. And... um, you would have been rooting for the Jaguars, who almost won, but you wouldn't have been destroyed right. uh, like you were with uh, with the by the Eagles. Anyway, delighted to have you, Claude. Well, I'm delighted to be here. And glad to be back with you and the, yeah. and the team, yes. No, we, we look forward to it, and you'll hear Claude's contributions throughout. But first, let me talk a little bit about uh, things on my mind. It's time to talk about football. Uh, I thought, just for fun, just for make-believe, of course, you know, because I'm not a betting man, uh, I took the uh, I took the uh, Jacksonville Jaguars uh, and I got 19 points. Oh, that was the three team teaser imaginary wager, and uh, so that came out all right. I thought they were going to win that game, Claude. It looked like the Jaguars might take it. Yeah, for uh, portions of that first half, it seemed like Jacksonville had things under control, uh, especially when Gronk got hurt. Gronkowski yeah. got hurt with yeah. the uh, uh, concussion, I guess. Uh, but don't forget, Jacksonville had a big lead against Pittsburgh the week before. Yeah. Pittsburgh came back, and it was really close at the end. And anytime there's Belichick and Brady together, I mean, they've got a shot. So. Fourth, fourth quarter, you know, fourth quarter Brady, 40 years old. I mean, it's amazing. Right. Hand, hand is banged up. And- right. Now, the show, the show piece was uh, Philadelphia. I mean, they were on fire. Right. I mean, I, and Minnesota's the favorite in that game, right? I think they were. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Minnesota the favorite in the game. I'm not sure how many points, but Minnesota's the favorite. Philadelphia just, Philadelphia. you know, yeah. Nick Foles. They kept showing Carson Wentz, who's the starting quarterback on the sideline, with a big smile on his face. But Foles played like crazy. If he plays that well in the Super Bowl, they got a real shot. Well, don't forget Nick Foles. I mean, he's not coming from out of nowhere. I mean, he was a starter in Philadelphia a few years ago. They traded him to the Rams for Sam Bradford. And then Bradford's getting hurt, and he's not working out. And Bradford actually is with Minnesota, and he's hurt, so he wasn't playing. Uh, and then, yeah, you get Carson Wentz. You bring Nick Foles back, who's been with you for a while. He had some success before, and he's your backup, and it's working out for Philadelphia. We shall see. It'll be an interesting Super Bowl. I think be so. One, uh, one worth watching. Um, I want to talk about a few things on my mind, but let me set it up with, if this, this is a bit of an indulgence, but... I was on uh, the show Media Buzz on Sunday, this last Sunday, uh, hosted by Howard Kurtz. Howie Kurtz, uh, he and I 
put in a lot of time together. We were both both veterans of CNN. Uh, we're both happy to be where we are now at Fox. But um, talked about a number of things. With your indulgence, we'll play this for you now. It's about six minutes. But I want to pick up on a couple of themes in it when we're done. Hang on. So, one-year anniversary... Democrats, Republicans can't agree. Trump gets a government shutdown. The media consensus, you tell me if this is fair, is that Republicans deserve more of the blame because they run everything here in Washington. Yes, I think that's fair. I think that's the right assessment. Though I agree with Guy Benson, what he was saying to you earlier. I think it's been a little fairer than usual. When the New York Times lead is Democrats, mm-hmm. you know, forced shutdown. I think that's a little better than usual. But it's a surprise, and it struck me uh, as uh, interesting and unusual. Now, President Trump, as everyone knows, has waged an unprecedented rhetorical war, at least against the media, and has been the subject of an unprecedented barrage of negative media coverage. Is this hurting the president? Is this hurting the media? Is it hurting both sides? It's hurting him uh, some. Uh, Obviously, in the opinion polls, we see that. But the thing I think people don't appreciate is just how hard this is for the, for the press to get around, to get its hands around. He is so big. He is such a supernova out there. He dominates. I, I said the other day, I said, you can go to a bar or restaurant anywhere in America, slap the table and say Trump, and the rest of your evening is taken care of. Yeah, friend everybody of mine, wants to friend, engage. A friend of mine said, yeah, except you can do that anywhere in the world. You know, he, he probably rivals, you know, Apple, Michael Jackson, Elvis in terms of world recognition. And it seems to be a story every day. Every but, hour sometimes. Yeah, sometimes every hour. yeah. But look, they they don't like him. Uh, they were very disappointed. We know that they're mostly they, liberal, the media, the, the establishment. Yes, yeah. mostly huh. liberal. They don't like him, uh, and they have been saying so from from the from the first day uh, that he started or what day he was elected. But, but let me jump in. This yeah, media yeah. dominance. This is a fascinating. Yeah. This over, some would say oversaturation. I mean, he makes news when he's on vacation. He makes news at six yeah, in yeah, the morning. Yeah. Um, the conventional wisdom would be, you know, give it a rest, give people time to miss you. Uh, do you wear out your welcome by not only driving the news agenda, but by being in the news so much yourself all the time? A little bit, uh, but conventional is not a word that's in his vocabulary. Just forget it. The only suggestion I'd make on the tweets is uh, stay with the tweets, but make them humorous, like the one he did yesterday about the marches, the women's march. The the women's marches across the country was pretty heavy turning. It was saturation coverage on some channels. And the president tweeted, a perfect day for all women to march, celebrate unprecedented milestones and economic success. Obviously, he knows they're protesting him. <laughs> sure, they, sure he does. But yeah, why aren't they saying thanks a lot, President? Get out there, get out there and do that. By the way, this he has that the press doesn't have. He does have a sense of humor. But if you put on Morning Joe or CNN or these press conferences like you just showed with the doctor, it is morose. It is funereal. And, it, and you know what's the charge today? We start with collusion. We go to obstruction of justice, mental deficiency, and incapacity. Has he got heart disease? Is he a racist? Perfect example uh, was uh, was a clip you played earlier. There's something wrong with a president who has to say, I am not a racist. Mm-hmm. Well, one of the reasons he has to say it is they keep yelling it at him. Are you a racist? Are you a, a racist? That was a CNN reporter, not a commentator, who said that. But so a lot of this seeps into straight news stories about the 25th Amendment. So, but let me take the other side. So the media would say, look, we've made mistakes, and maybe the tone against the president is too aggressive, but... We are holding him accountable. We are exposing things that are going on in his government. We are uh, checking him when he makes exaggerated or untruthful statements. Um, so some of the stories are wrong. Some of the stories are too hostile. But some of the stories are legitimate. 
I will go to Jimmy Carter. I don't often quote him. He said he's never seen anybody so badly treated by the press uh, as Donald Trump. Well, you work for Ronald Reagan. That's right. So he was treated badly. I think Quayle held the record in terms of bad treatment and press condescension. But this is a new one. But again, this phenomenon, I I still think I'll I'll, I'll forgive the press this much. They're still trying to understand this guy and how how it worked. My friend Steve Wynn said to me last week, he said, can the mind of man go back to a time that was pre-Trump? What did we do before last year? What did we talk about? I'm Who trying, did we talk about? I'm trying to remember what my show was about. I know, yeah. I know, but I mean, there, there's no shortage of things, of no shortage of things to talk about. But is and that, so, uh, you know, it's a good thing, I guess, that everybody's, you know, plugged into democracy and politics. But is that um, does it add to polarization? Yes, of course. But the polarization is there, and the polarization has been there, and the polarization has been there because of the media, and uh, I think in large part because of the media, and it it drives this opposition. We've always had differences in American politics, but now with the 24-hour media on all fronts, you're getting it in your face. You're getting it in your face all the time. Was the president's uh, asshole comments about uh, in certain countries and their immigra- immigrants, was it overplayed by the press? Yes, way overplayed. It was a private meeting. I was with an Uber driver from Nigeria yesterday who said, uh, you know, we're pretty successful here in America. But he's absolutely right about Nigeria and other places. They already got this guy said it 11 times. Mm-hmm. Sorry, but this is the way men talk. It really is, especially especially in private meetings. And for the charge to come out, by the way, the point this Uber driver was making is the place is terrible, as he described it, Nestle, because of the mismanagement of government, because the police aren't there to protect you, they're there to steal from you, uh, and, 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 and other things. You can't have the argument that you should save people in America on a refugee status and say... If you don't, they're going to go back to some godforsaken place right. and then deny that it's a godforsaken place. I, I need a brief answer. When the president yes, is sir. constantly be- beating up on the press and his base loves it, but is he not winning over new converts of people who were either skeptical or opposed to his election? I, you know, I don't know, uh, but it does seem that he's rising up a little bit in the polls, and it looks like he's getting some to independence. And if the prognosticators in the Republican Party, the economist types, the Cudlows, the Steve Moores, are right about this economy, and if it's the economy, stupid... Things are going to get better. Well, things could get better if we get the government back open. Bill Bennett, thanks very much for <laughs> Thank stopping you, by. Howard. Great Thank to you. see you. Great to see you. Okay, I, I just want to pick up on a couple of things that, that I said in that interview. First of all, I said, you know, one of the things about Trump, he's got a sense of humor. I pointed this out in regard to the uh, march where they, you know, they asked him what, he, what his comments were about the march. He put a tweet out about the march that saw the women marching and the interviews I saw, these po- people marching were, you know, it's women's rights, women's this, but a lot of it was hate Trump. One woman said, well, most of, we're, most of us are here because we hate Trump. So he said, uh, he said, ah, it's great. You know, First Amendment out there marching, it's great. And I look forward to hearing from them and them saying how great the economy's doing and unemployment among women, particularly black women, is at its lowest rate ever. And, you know, I'm sure they're very grateful for the turnaround in the economy that we've accomplished here in the administration. <laughs> so it's kind of sticking into them, but, but in a humorous way. Way. contrasted with this morose funereal approach of the liberals and i just was testing my own thinking this morning and i put on morning joe and i put on cnn and they're just so hangdog they're just so you know oh my god oh things are so bad things are so terrible now i mean you know there's a time to mourn a time to grieve the bible says that you know but not all the time you're not gonna grieve for four years i didn't grieve for eight years during the obama administration i was unhappy but you know keep your balance keep your sense of humor but um you know they're just so morose however 
what's the song from Annie, The Sun Will Come Out Tomorrow? Yeah, right. The thing they're clutching to, like a lifeboat in the ocean, liberals, is the midterms. The midterms are coming. The midterm, we're going to be saved in November. Well, it is January, so you know, you see if you can find a little shelter before that. Right. You know, like come up with an agenda. But uh, they say, oh, man, in November, it's going to turn it all around. Now, um, first term, midterms, always unkind to the president in power. They always lose seats. But, you know, are they going to trounce the Trump people? I I don't think so. That has a lot to do with what we're going to talk about uh, in a bit here, mainly with uh, with Joel Farkas uh, and with and with Steve Wynn. But um, they're putting an awful lot of leg, uh, eggs in the one in the one basket. And you got any comment on that? When you had mentioned about you know the time to mourn and you know how long will you mourn? Will it be four years? I mean, at some point uh, there wouldn't have to be any mourning if you set aside differences and just try to work with the president and to get some things done. Open the government exactly. Get the government <laughs> workers back to work exactly. I mean, it doesn't have to be that way there's a way you can come together and i don't know work together if you remember a couple of weeks ago when uh president trump had uh leaders from both sides of the aisle in um in a, a immigration discussion he was talking about hey you know we can work on immigration and do this and do that and it was no 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 and it was trump said well we have to negotiate it we yeah. have to negotiate it <clears throat> yeah. at some point it just comes to the table to try to make things better like or dislike the guy yeah yeah. Anyway, um, we'll see. Uh, they got to come up with something better than the resistance and no Trump. Let me let me give you another reason why. I uh, picking up on Sunday talk uh, again on Fox Fox News Sunday. Chris Wallace has this show. He's got a panel, and he had four panelists um, and um, the two liberals, Charles Lane from the Washington Post and Jane Harmon from the Wilson Center, formerly a congresswoman. Uh, he's a Democrat. She's a Democrat. Um, and uh, they were talking about grades for Trump. And to Chris Wallace's astonishment, and to mine watching it, uh, they gave him very good policy grades. They said the end of the year, he said, good, good, yeah, the policy. She said foreign policy, he's done some good things. I don't agree with everything. don't agree with him on trade, but he's done some very good things. And Lane said, yeah, he's, he's accomplished some stuff in the economy and ISIS and other things. He said, but, you know, character, he's not George Washington. I don't think anybody's walking around saying that Donald Trump is George Washington. He would not be confused for George Washington. <laughs> right. This is a great story. It made me think of the story, a great story about Washington. There's so many great stories, but at the Constitutional Convention where he was presiding, rarely saying anything, one of the uh, one of the delegates after the day's session just went up and, and uh, said, Hey, General, it's so good to see you, and slapped him on the back. You know, you've done such a great job for our country. And Washington just kind of coldly stared at him, you know, not used to this kind of flattery. Well, I guarantee if you went up to Trump and said, man, you're doing a great job, he'd invite you to dinner, you know? <laughs> yes, I am, you know? Come spend the weekend with me in Mar-a-Lago. Anyway, but the important point, that's right, the important point out of this is I think it's even some of the liberals are catching on that he's had a very good year policy-wise. Now, he does step on his own, you know, achievements right. somewhat with the tweets and with other things uh but um it uh it, it's it's almost undeniable i mean the economy is undeniable and i think isis that's undeniable and the fact that there are fewer people crossing the border at the moment and the supreme court and the federal courts these are just these are just facts the other thing and i don't want to dwell on it because enough has been said about uh the s-hole countries uh comment except i did say because it's true i was with a driver from the airport and this 
talking about Nigeria and Nigeria's country whose immigrants do very well. In and he was Nigerian. Yeah, yeah. Right. He's not, and he was Nigerian. And I said, so what did you think of the president's country? He said, oh, I don't like Trump. I don't like Trump. He said, but he is right. He said it is a, and then he repeated the phrase that imputed to, 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 to Trump. And he said, the police don't protect you. They're there to steal from you. Economy doesn't work. The water's not clean. And, you know, on and on. Well, he didn't fault the genes of the people or the DNA of the people. He talked about the government and the corruption. And I said, "Is that the only country in Africa?" He said, "No, a lot of countries in Africa uh, deserve what uh, Trump called them." So, you know, what I said on TV is, is I quoted that story, but I also said, "Look, you know, you can't have it both ways. You can't have a refugee status for people who are escaping immiserated circumstances." And then say you can't send them back because they're going back to a hellhole. And then deny that it's a hellhole. Um, These are hellholes or they're not hellholes. I I said also, look, this is the way men speak in private. Not all men, but guys from Queens and Brooklyn. I'm from Brooklyn. Come on. You know, this doesn't mean the guy is a racist. Uh, Any comment? You got any comment? I think the point that you made about the, you know, refugee status of individuals leaving country is one that, you know, should be explored. Sure, you may not like the language, but... That's even part of the debate with the immigration thing. I mean, people don't want to send some folks back to countries like El Salvador because of the conditions in El Salvador. I mean, I have family who are Salvadorian um, via marriage. And so uh, they tell me all the time about the conditions in El Salvador. And that is not a place that you want to go back to your kids. This is reality. I mean, this is the way it is. So, you know, but the charges, I mean, it's just the media, you know. I would say part of the reason the media does not handle Trump is he's so huge. He's a supernova. I said, name recognition, I'll bet around the world he is... uh, you know, I'm repeating what I said on TV. It's like my, Michael Michael Jackson, Elvis, uh, the Golden Arches, you know, most recognized sure, name. Recognize, yeah. And I thought I had a funny line when I said, you know, in America, you go into a bar and slap your hand on the on the bar and say Trump, and the evening is taken care of. I mean, you, you'll be involved <laughs> in heated discussion, right. do that in a barber shop or a, a bar, or anywhere oh, for you want. Sure. Yeah, yeah. For sure. Yeah. And uh, a friend of mine said, any, almost anywhere in the world. People know who he is, so uh, that needs to be dealt with. I just want to put a marker on something else. I don't know enough because we haven't seen it, but um, I guess it will be seen by all members of Congress here, uh, and that's the uh, Trump dossier material, which was used by the FBI, and uh, the charges that the FBI worked to get these FISA warrants, these eavesdropping, uh, phone-tapping warrants, to check in on the Trump campaign. This is a big, big, big deal. Uh, If this turns out to be true, that the FBI was in cahoots with with um, essentially the Clinton campaign uh, to get the goods on uh, Donald Trump. This is a huge story, a huge story, and we will uh, we will continue to track that. We, we're going to get Devin Nunes on, who's the chairman of the Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence, and he put this uh, mem- memorandum together, and we'll all be very curious about its contents. Okay, it's time to continue our conversation with Steve Wynn, chairman and CEO of Wynn Resorts. Steve has built some of the world's finest hotels and resorts. He's also the finance chair at the Republican National Committee. Last week, Steve talked about the benefits of the new tax bill for business owners and employees. He even specifically mentioned how it will benefit his employees and how we can expect an economic boom in America because of the new tax bill. This week, I asked Steve if the benefits will be palpable enough for the American consumer to sway them politically. Here, Steve. Yes. Okay. It this will. year. Yeah. Absolutely. Spring. By the summer. Summer. Okay. Oh, yes. People are going to see their paychecks. And what about all these companies? Walmart, Apple, everybody announcing they're giving bonuses. They're giving some of this money that Uncle Sam gave back to them, to their employees. 
Yep. And when we get a little further in the year, so am I. It's great. I'm going to take everybody under 75000 and give them another 1000 bucks or something. In other words, everybody is sort of sharing some of this money with the, with the employees. It's exactly what the Democrats said would never happen. Yeah. It's everything is exactly the opposite of the rhetoric of the Democrats before the vote. Well, this will be interesting to see how it plays out. Again, excuse me for being the political lens, but boy, I'm just saturated inside the Beltway. I guess you're headed there soon, but you know, about the whole thing about Democrats envision not just a tsunami, but a super tsunami, a super majority in the House. I have my doubts too, because I have my doubts about these polls and about everything else. But I think, you know, it was James Carville, right, who famously said, it's the economy, stupid. And if people see that in their own lives, that's got to make a difference. Maybe talking about the Democrats winning a lot of seats in the House of Representatives? Yeah. We'll see. We'll I see. Don't, uh, yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure. Of course, you know, the off year, the midterm, you know, of the first term historically averages, well, I think, about 20 seats lost for the party in power. Not this year. Okay. Okay, I, good. My, All right. My well, prediction is if it's the over and under on 20, way under. Okay. Okay. Over and under. I love it. Let's talk some other money things. I read again, uh, the Republican National Committee, according to Politico this morning, uh, will report raising $11.1 million in December, bringing the yearly haul to $132.5 million. Figure the RNC says represents the largest non-election year haul by a party committee. This is tremendous, puts us in a great position. You are the finance chairman of the Republican National Committee. I heard that. Yeah. Did you? Yeah. You got you got the short straw, but you're getting the long bills out of some of your buddies. Over 50 or 60 million more than ever before. Is that right? Uh-huh. And what are the Dems? If you're at 100 and... Oh, we were six times them. Wow. Like that. Some ridiculous number. But Donald I... Trump is unpopular. People hate him. Yeah, they, they dislike hate. him. It's awful. He's the worst president ever. Yeah, the tax mean... bill is going to take give money to the rich people. <laughs> and no, no middle class people are going to get money. It's an unconscionable amount of lying now. It's quite spectacular. Yeah. The politicians get up on TV just like President Barack did and say, if you want your doctor, you can keep your doctor. If you want your plan, you keep your plan. Yeah. I mean, we're not talking about shading things anymore. We're just flat out talking about lying. Hi, did you see the uh, fake news awards the president gave? Did no, you hear I didn't. About him? Well, they had a categories and they gave out about 10. Number one was Paul Krugman. You know, the former Princeton economist, he's in yeah. my new now, saying dollar bill if there ever was a three dollar bill. Saying, <laughs> saying that with the election of Trump, the stock market will fall and will never recover. That was the biggest whopper uh, in the fake news well, world. I, why everybody thinks that Paul Krugman knew anything in the first place has always been a mystery to me. Well, because he's a professor at Princeton. That's yeah, self that's self-evident, right? He's, he's got a loud mouth and that's mainly been his thing. And he gets to write in the New York Times, which is supposed to imbue somebody with a, a sense of wonderfulness. Uh, Steve Wynn, we got a lot of response when I asked you, I'm going to ask you again, in this climate, how you raise the money. And I asked you, I said, when you call these guys who you are asking to write a big check, do you have to hear first half an hour or an hour of stuff? And you said, yep. And I just sit there and I listen to it. Then I say, okay. You ought to tell the president this. This is what Donald Trump should say. I say, look, I don't have that kind of relationship. I can't tell the president what he should say. And I don't think he would pay attention to me if I did. What I say to donors is, would you rather have Pelosi and Schumer or would you rather have Ryan and McConnell? Yeah. And that ends the conversation right there. Yeah. Let's talk about the year. We're at a year here in uh, in about a week. Uh, one year of the Trump presidency. 
How do you evaluate it? All things considered. Take a man in the totality of of his actions. I think along with most Americans, what did we do for entertainment and conversation at the table before Donald Trump? (laughs) What did we talk Uh, about? That's a great question. I have no memory of pre-Trump because all of my memories, brain cells have been completely reprogrammed. You can't go anywhere, can't do anything without Donald Trump being the subject of conversation. And this started during the campaign. It's quite an incredible phenomenon, this unlikely president. If I can make this point, Bill. Yes, sir. Our country has had 45 of these characters as presidents. A few of them should have stayed home. They were nothing. Like Johnson in uh, after Lincoln. Sure. Yeah, and, and a few other people, but without mentioning names. And But we've always at key moments in American history had somebody special show up. The right guy at the right time. Mm-hmm. And I count those as George Washington for sure in the war and to put this country together. Andrew Jackson in 1832, when Carolina was going to completely ignore federal government in the abominable tariff dispute, Andrew Jackson saved sort of the respect for law and order in this country. Abe Lincoln, absolutely, to protect the union's existence. I have to give it to FDR during the Depression, and I give it to Reagan. That's five people Mm -hmm. that came along, a couple of them really unlikely people, Lincoln and Reagan. Unlikely people became president of the United States, the right guy at the right time when America needed a transformative person. You can imagine how amazed and delighted I am that this guy that I've known for 34 years might be the sixth one. Well, it's my praise. Donald came along when this country was in trouble. When the book is completely written about the eight years of Barack Obama's presidency, we're going to see the damage that was done to the fabric economically and emotionally, culturally of our country. Racial division reached an all-time high in my lifetime, and I'm going to be 76 on the 27th. Lying, political divisiveness, polarization went to a new level. For a man that I thought his election was one of the great things in American history, it showed that we weren't racist, that we would go for what we perceived to be talent ahead of everything else. And Barack was the biggest disappointment of my life. Yeah, and turned I know. out to be the worst president in my lifetime. I know. Now, if we had gone on that left-wing bender that Bernie Sanders and Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer seemed to represent and Elizabeth Warren, this country would have gone down a path that it had started to travel irrevocably. So Mrs. Clinton seemed to be not her husband's centrist mentality, but seemed to have gone further left yeah. than any of the others. Yeah. That combination with a Democrat, with a very lefty House and Senate, and America would never be the same again. So if you look at it that way, and Trump helped elect a lot of people in that last election, he got blunt through in Missouri. There are a couple of races yes. that Donald went in and saved him. Donald Trump's election to the presidency, an unlikely candidate and president that he is, seems to be something that has put us on a healthy path. His tweeting and his personal rhetorical style, which is that of a campaigning, fearless entrepreneur that didn't have to answer to anybody for what he said. He, he's still the man he was before, and he's not going to change at 71 years old. But his basic ideas were dead, solid, right? Yeah. And it's proven this year. Well, as you just heard, Steve wins experience as an employer of tens of thousands of Americans and as finance chair at the RNC gives him great insight on the current administration. We're lucky to have him on the show. You're listening to The Bill Bennett Show. 
This is Joel Farkas, who's on the board of the American Strategy Group, uh, an expert on American resources and a very successful entrepreneur and businessman. We've been having an ongoing discussion about what I referred to when I was explaining to some friends the other night, country mice and city mice, okay? (laughs) More specifically, (laughs) people who live in smaller cities and rural areas compared to people who live in um, metropolitan areas on the east and west coast. And we've talked about a number of things. Uh, uh, Joel has provided a great outline of issues and thoughts on this. And the topic last time was about how uh, the audience is familiar with the fact that how difficult it is to start a business in a state like California. But Joel's explaining to us how difficult it is to buy a house uh, in California. Well, in the midst of these conversations that Joel and I have been having, I've been doing a lot of reading, stuff he has suggested uh, and others. And just an hour and a half ago, Joel, I was in the, uh, the grocery store. Uh, Mrs. Bennett's away for just a day. She had to went to a baptism for her niece. And so I had to do a little shopping. And when I was in there, I got a call from Jim Lankford. He's senator from Oklahoma. And I said, by the way, I said, how are you guys doing? Joel, you can guess what he said. He said, oh, we're doing great now. You know, we're not forgotten anymore. Uh, before I get into this Joel Kotkin article, which you had actually recommended to me, Tell us why Senator Langford reports that Oklahoma is not forgotten now after a year of Donald Trump. The main, uh, the main reason is people are moving to Oklahoma. People are moving to the South. They're moving to the West. And it's almost exclusively to those areas. And, you know, we've talked about 150 or so cities. What we see in the media, and I, I hate to keep harping on this, but we see reasons and, and policies and, and opinions written as to why people should stay in L.A., San Francisco, why they should stay in Chicago, why they should stay in New York. They shouldn't stay because they can move to a place like Oklahoma, buy a home. Their housing costs are about a third of what they make. They have a job. They have a wonderful job. And they have a great place to send their kids to school in a low-crime area. It's just a, a wonderful quality of life. I want you to focus on the job because one of the things that Langford said is, you know, we're booming. I mean, fossil fuels are back. That's important to Oklahoma. Uh, Fracking is, you know, something you've been talking about for years. I I think you were the first person I heard use the term about how we could solve a lot of our problems if we just allow more more fracking. And the kind of enterprises that uh, people in Oklahoma engage in are uh, are booming enterprises. We could almost spend each week for 52 weeks talking about industry, a job that people can go to right now and make sixty to $70,000 a year in so many places in the United States. This week, uh, I would like people to take a look at the trucking industry. You, know, you hear about Amazon selling things everywhere else. You hear about certain retailers and certain businesses that are booming. Well, every single thing that someone's buying has to be moved the trucking industry has what they call unseated trucks, which means they have this infrastructure. They have the, the demand to move products, but they don't have enough people to fill the trucks and drive the trucks. The big trucking companies, they're going to offer to train you. If you, don't, if you don't have a license to drive a truck, they'll pay you to train you. They'll give you housing assistance to buy a house. They'll give you health insurance. There's a demand for these jobs all over the country, and Oklahoma's one place. Tennessee's another place. Yeah. Everywhere there is a place for a job. And there is absolutely no reason why you need to go uh, go to college, get a college degree, 
become some part of you know part of the Silicon Valley technological revolution, be one of the knowledge you know the knowledge based industries that people talk about. Like Silicon Valley, by definition, says their technology allows you to conduct your life and your business anywhere, anytime. That's the basis behind technological innovation. That's true, which by definition means you can conduct your life and your business anywhere in the United States, anytime. It does not have to be in L.A., San Francisco, Chicago, New York, or Washington, D.C. does not. Right. Exactly right. Given what's going on in the country and the shifts, I, I asked you last time, what's the political dimension of this? The guy, the author you recommended to me, Joel Kotkin, in the article is, Can the Trump Economy Trump Trump? That is, can the Trump economy, because of its successes, overcome the tweets and the other rhetorical issues, if you will. But the main focus is on the economy. He has this sentence. Today, the often disdained red states have the wind at their back, while in blue America, the economy seems to be slowing. Example. The most recent employment numbers from the Bureau of Labor Statistics confirm these trends. Texas, as it has for the last few decades, is generating jobs at a higher rate than more populous California, lauded by the mainstream media as the premier anti-Trump economy. Uh, that is uh, California. Now, you know California very well, but you know Texas well, too. And we're talking about Oklahoma. I just want to read one more sentence and then have you comment. So since Trump's election... We are seeing a meaningful change in the geography of American economic vitality. This isn't, Joel, because the president is writing checks to these states. This is because of policy, correct? Yes, it is. And I absolutely admire Mr. Kotkin, Professor Kotkin's phrase you just quoted, the geography of economic vitality. Yeah, it's a nice phrase, um, isn't it? Yeah, it's a nice phrase. We know where that is. It's not a, it's not a, a, a ethereal phrase. Columbia, South Carolina, Durham, Austin, Richmond, yep. Orlando, yep. Provo, Ogden, Colorado Springs, Las Vegas, Spokane. We know where the geography is. Right. We know this because the census tells us, labor statistics tell us. It's not ethereal. Every one of those locales have what economists refer to as full employment. Full employment, if it has full employment, then why are there jobs available? And we hear this all the time. What is full employment? Well, an economist says full employment is the maximum employment you can have. Think of this. The maximum employment economy can have. That if you continue the productivity, you're going to have wage growth and scarcities that are, that'll make the economy come out of balance. It's ridiculous when you think of the fact that how do you have full employment when we actually have so many millions of people unemployed? And those people that are unemployed, an economist will refer to as kind of discouraged or their skills aren't matched to the current economy and current jobs. Uh, they're, they're not seeking, actively seeking. Well, um, of course they're discouraged. You're damn right they're discouraged and they're disgusted because they're people. They don't have a job. And 50% of the people in poverty in the United States, 50% do not have a job. 40% actually have a job and they're still in poverty. Now, the where, the, where are those people? Those people, we know where they are. They're in the major metropolitan areas that we've been discussing the last few times. They're in Los Angeles. They are in San Francisco. They are in Seattle. They're in New York. The top five and top ten cities in the United States that have the worst poverty rates 
are those cities I just mentioned. They also happen to be the cities and states that have the largest amount of billionaires in the United States. Forty-one percent of the billionaires in the United States are in California and New York. Same cities in those states make up a significant amount of the world's billionaires. And that's where we get this, this, this nomenclature of income inequality. Well, you know what? In Oklahoma, or in, in the cities I've mentioned, Chattanooga, Jacksonville, there's not any income inequality in those cities. There's not income inequality in Provo, Utah, or Colorado Springs. There is a really vibrant the vitality that Professor Cock can mention. There's a vitality of a business climate where people are, you have some wealthy people, but you have middle class, and you have poorer, poorer people getting jobs and moving up. That's what's going on in the United States. It's not a belief. It's fact. Let's turn to this uh, and get your comment on this. America first and foreign investment. America first rhetoric, uh, the article says, may horrify the economic and cultural cosmopolis. But the pressure to locate plants in America seems to be paying off. Fiat plans to move production to Warren in the Detroit suburbs from Mexico, and that's expected to create 2,500 jobs there. Toyota and Mazda have announced that they will locate a major new manufacturing plant in Huntsville, Alabama, creating 4,000 jobs. Trump might be unpopular internationally, but foreign investors are upping their stakes in the U.S., particularly in the industrial sector, which has been booming. The U.S. remains the preferred destination for foreign capital. And here you go. Here's your point. But these investments mean more in Wisconsin, Alabama, Texas, and Michigan than they do in New York, California, or Massachusetts. Some of the most precipitous drops in the numbers of highly paid blue-collar jobs since 1991 have been in blue states, which you just said, California, New New York, and Illinois. Today, manufacturing accounts for barely 5% of state employment in New York and 8% in California. But it's 16% of the jobs in Wisconsin and more than 13% in both Michigan and Alabama. And then I want to say something here about energy, but please please comment on that. Foreign investment, America first. I mean, it matters uh, where you live and what the policies are. Uh, and the fact that you're getting so much more foreign investment, America turns out, I didn't know this, is still the preferred destination for foreign investment. Maybe not by much the last eight years, but now it seems to be picking up again dramatically. It absolutely is. There's two things that we hear that don't tell that story, the opposite side of that story. And it is a story. It's a narrative. One is Professor Schiller, who's a Yale economist, Nobel Prize winning uh-huh. economist, just graded President Trump, said he would fail him. He said he's an easy grader, but he would fail him in economics. Why would he fail him? He says he needs to spend more money to boost scientific research to attract the most talented minds. But he's wasted his, his, his tax cuts and his focus on manufacturing really doesn't do much to the economy, as if he's saying as if, of, of, how dumb can you be, President Trump, those things don't really do much. They don't have much effect. They don't matter. Another economist who is often quoted by Washington Post and New York Times and LA Times and others like that, uh, Dean Baker, he uses as an example to describe why the government should not only hire um, skilled people in these high, high technology businesses, but the government should spend more in social spending, infrastructure spending. 
Germany, government spending, and he uses as an example France, of all places, France is one of, is an example of one of the highest productivity uh, uh, countries per hour. As a, as a great example of high government spending, government spending is fifty six percent of their economy. Now, Bill, you and I should know that that's one of the most absurd, asinine uh, uh, comparisons yeah. you've ever heard, yeah. because we know French President Macron just came out a few months ago and said France needs to change, needs to stop, needs to cease their government spending because they know empirically it has failed France. Yeah. It doesn't work. That was our first interview so with we- you. That was our first interview with you where you pointed out that uh, Trump is, uh, what does Falstaff say in Shakespeare, not only witty in himself but the cause of wit in others. That he, he's, he's, got Im- <laughs> he's got imitators around yes. the world, and Macron was one of them. Yes. You, were in, you were in Paris at the time and noticed it and reported it to us. He said, experience has shown us that more public spending was not leading to less yeah. unemployment. Yeah. On the contrary. Yeah. Now, I think I'm getting less frustrated than I used to be because the worst thing that can happen to the experts we're talking about and the policy and the policymakers that we're describing is that they become irrelevant. And they are becoming irrelevant yeah. because we know, as Professor Kropkin has, has aptly pointed out, and you mentioned before last week, people are voting with their feet. They voted at the polls recently, but they're voting with their feet. And they're not listening to these other narratives because, first of all, they're wrong. Second of all, it doesn't work. And third of all, neither are any of the other countries around Europe that people like to point to as beacons of government spending. The but, world is changing. But but give Europe this credit. It, I mean, what I just, what I just reported... Fiat and Mazda, and well, it's, that's of course Asian, but these companies are coming to America and investing yes. in, you know, not in social welfare, but in manufacturing. And where, yes. and where are they putting their money and their investment? In Alabama and in Tennessee and in Michigan. Exactly. When you live in a major uh, metropolitan area, you like to think about global trade. Well, guess what? If global trade means you can buy those things manufactured somewhere else whether it's energy produced somewhere else, whether it's cars built somewhere else. And guess what? Those, that somewhere else that people in big cities have been uh, purchasing goods from, that somewhere else is now becoming America. Yeah. Everyone scoffed at President Trump when he said, there's no reason why American can't be a manufacturing uh, mm-hmm. powerhouse. They all, laughed at it. Well, the critics said that's so old, that's over, manufacturing's over, right? Yeah. It's over. We don't we don't need to make goods anymore. And if we need to make them, we can get them from somewhere else where where it's better suited to be manufactured. It's just absurd. Now, now, but what but what happens? And, and, and this is what's important politically. This is what's very important politically. The Americans who live in these these, these towns, in these cities, these smaller cities, rural areas, they know they've been forgotten. When they they don't really understand. They didn't take an economics course, but they know they're being forgotten when they say that their job is irrelevant. It's unnecessary. And it could be done somewhere else. They know that. And what President Trump said is, you know what? I'm going to bring him back. And within within 12 months of his presidency, he's brought him back. Uh, that doesn't necessarily mean he's going to get credit for it. This is not about getting credit. It's not about being right. It's about the American people succeeding and that's that's all that matters, and that's all that whether this president run, uh, gets reelected or not, what he has changed, he has proven that we can bring these important jobs to the United States and the world because the world is doing what he's doing. 
great stuff, Joel. It's really great. Uh, is it true that, remember you and I had a conversation, I think five years ago, about energy, and this is where, you know, talked about fracking and other things. I think it, again, I'm, 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 I'm not sophisticated in these areas, but it seems to me no industry or sector had more of a stake in the election than the energy sector. We know that Obama and the liberals, you know, they just wanted to put coal out of business. They wanted to put fossil fuels out of business, big oil out of business. And that meant not only the loss of resources and higher prices, but a dramatic loss of jobs. I read the other day, I couldn't find it, but there's a prediction that the new energy policy and encouraging things, not discouraging energy, will lead to, in the next 20 years, 2 million new jobs. Am I at least okay? Go ahead. Yeah, that, that's least. all. I just want to introduce the idea, then let you elaborate on it. The greatest demand for petroleum-based products, fossil fuels, that is increasing, and the reason why um, this industry is not going away. The greatest demand is from places like India and China and Asia, by far. Um, it's not the developed country in terms of increased demand because we're be- developed countries are becoming more efficient, more effective. The absolute greatest demand is, is occurring in India, China, and, and those areas. No matter what we do in the United States in terms of reducing our CO2 emissions, it will be dwarfed by the increased CO2 emissions in those countries. Now, there's a, there's a lot of ways through technological advances to retard those increases. You change from coal-fired plants to gas-fired plants and things like that. Yeah. We don't need to spend a lot of time on that. All of those things occur over time and become efficient over time. There's nothing that the United States or Europe can do as a climate uh, change advocates would like to decimate within the next five years, retard, eliminate the fossil fuel industry. It's not going to happen, no matter what you feel, believe, or think. It will not happen, because it's not going to happen, because of the other countries around the world that are using these products. Now, what is the one thing that every single person in the world uses? They use electricity, and they use uh, fossil fuels. When you have a scarcity, a lack of this product, the people that get hurt the most are the people who can afford it the least. We see this in countries like Venezuela, where the cost of energy goes up so high that people can't afford to heat or cool their homes. I am as fed up with uh, conservatives being accused of not caring about the world and not caring about the people as I've ever been on any topic you and I have ever spoken to. Conservatives care about dealing with poverty. One of the ways you deal with poverty is something like energy, where everyone needs it. You should have it in abundance at a low cost. Not government subsidized, right. but abundantly produced at low cost. Right, right. Helps help seven billion people yeah. overnight. Yeah, yeah. We're now a net exporter of energy, right? Yes. Well, we're we're exporting and we're importing. What's interesting is that um, you mentioned about the politics of energy in, in Europe and China. We are exporting what's called uh, LNG, liquefied natural gas. We're exporting it to places like uh, the UK and Europe and China because we have such an abundant supply. We can put it on ships, liquefy it, put it on ships, send it over basically in, in days to these countries. They have facilities to take it and regasify it and use it, meaning they're using uh, uh, now gas supplies to power their utility grid where they weren't using yeah. it before. Yeah. And furthermore, they used to have, they used to be completely dependent upon Russia right. and the Middle East right. for their gonna, supplies. Yeah. I was going to raise that. This is good for us geopolitically, isn't it? 
they're no longer completely dependent yeah. on, on, on those places. Okay. There's nothing wrong with that. No, there's nothing wrong That's, with that. That's right. <laughs> All right. Well, we're back to the beginning. I was just thinking as you were talking about uh, where we started, I told you about the call from Senator Langford in Oklahoma. I was just thinking of those lyrics from the musical. You're doing fine, Oklahoma. Oklahoma. Okay, L-A-H-O-M-A, Oklahoma. I mean, I, and, and this is what happens when you turn uh, America loose um, and let it do its thing. I keep thinking of Madison's phrase, the fertile activity of a free people. He says, let's limit what the government does and instead rely on the fertile activity of a free people. And that's what we're talking about. Joel, let's conclude here for today and continue this conversation. We've really developed a great theme here, and we're getting a great response to it. And we're very grateful to you for guiding us in this direction. Thank you, Bill. Joel Farkas is director of the American Strategy Group. And as you know, I'm a fellow of the American Strategy Group. To learn more about the important work they're doing, go to amstrategy.org or facebook.com slash amstrategy. You're listening to The Bill Bennett Show. As we change direction a little, I am very happy, and you will be happy, uh, to have some time with Neil Ferguson, Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, Stanford University. He's a historian and a best-selling author. The new book is The Square and the Tower, Networks and Power from the Freemasons to Facebook. Neil Ferguson is taking a look at the collision between old power hierarchies and social networks. Uh, I don't know if you remember me. I moderated a debate between you and Jared Diamond at a Milken conference a few years ago. You I do that? indeed, and it's good to be reconnected with you after all these years, um, and a pleasure to have a chance to talk. Any 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 comment on the difference between Harvard and Stanford? <laughs> <laughs> apart from the weather? Yeah, yeah apart I, from the I, weather, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, the biggest difference that, that strikes one is that computer science and engineering are so much more dominant than uh, Harvard that it's really more like MIT as an institution than it is like Harvard, uh, even although they're kind of in competition for the same elite students. It's also a a slightly more flexible institution, I'm finding. You can get stuff done here a lot faster than you could at Harvard. Uh, The square and the tower. Neil Ferguson, uh, uh, what's the square and what's the tower? And give us an example of each from old and new. Well, if you went to Tuscany on vacation and visited the town of Siena, you'd see a wonderful juxtaposition of a square and a tower, the central uh, Piazza del Campo, the central town square, uh, is where the local people meet, converse, sometimes even play sports like horse racing. And then overshadowing it is the Torre do Mangia, this very tall tower that dates back to the 1300s, which was really the headquarters of the, the government of the the Sienese Republic. And, and I chose the square and the tower for the title of the book because what I wanted to convey to people is that throughout history, there has been this interplay between the square and the tower. In other words, between social networks that we engage in informally and structure of power, states and all kinds of government really which try to control what goes on in the town square. That's the central theme of the book uh, and the contemporary uh, equivalent of, of the square and the tower is the, the square of online social networks of uh, the world of Facebook and Google and the tower of established uh, uh, power in, in, in Washington DC or, or for that matter in, in New York City. I, I end the book with uh, an allusion to the, the 
contrast between the Facebook campus, which is rather like a giant square, and Trump Tower in uh, in New York City. Does the square always, often, usually challenge the tower? Not always. Most of, in most of history, the the tower has the upper hand. I mean, we as a species tend to organise ourselves hierarchically. Uh, tribes and clans, early human organizations tend to have a chief. And for most of history, the square is pretty much under the the control of the tower wherever you look. But sometimes, just occasionally in history, and maybe because of a technological change, the square can get the upper hand and can challenge the forces of authority in the tower. And it's no coincidence that revolutions often start in squares. Think Tahrir Square in uh, in Egypt not so long ago, or the Medan in, in Kiev and Ukraine. Uh, so I'm interested in those moments when the square challenges uh, the tower. Those are the moments of, of disruption. Uh, we we have certainly witnessed them in our own time. But I think to understand exactly the ways in which the internet and social media are disrupting established hierarchies, you need to go back in history and see when it's happened before. You talk about uh, the priesthood of believers as an example of the square's aspiration as well as its power. Is that right? Right. So when Martin Luther launched his challenge to the Roman Catholic hierarchy back 501 years ago, his vision was that if only he could connect ordinary people directly to God by giving them the power to read the Bible for themselves in those newly printed editions that were becoming available at that time, then you might just get the priesthood of all believers that the Bible talks about. Uh, But of course, that's not what happened. What happened was a tremendous polarization of European society between those who who bought Luther's message and joined his Reformation, became Protestants, and those who opposed it regarded it as heretical and uh, and formed a counter-Reformation to, to challenge it. And I think something somewhat similar has happened in our own time. People in Silicon Valley love talking about how if everybody is connected on their networks, then there will be a global community. That's a favorite phrase of Facebook founder Mark Zuckerberg. But I don't see that global community right Right now, what I see is a similar story to the one of the 16th and 17th century of ideological polarization. And if you look on these network platforms today, whether it's Facebook or Twitter for that matter, it's really striking how incredibly polarized they've become. So I don't think uh, we're any more likely to create a global community in our time of the Internet than Martin Luther was to create a priesthood of all believers with the help of the printing press 500 years ago. Is the square um, aspirational? in a way that the tower isn't. I mean, the tower is can be established structures of authority, inherited structures of authority. The government uh, can be the divine right of kings, I, I assume. It, is there something about the square and, and the network, people gathering in the square to stay with the metaphor, that is aspirational, that somehow um, believes that it will uh, make things better, improve things? I don't think that's exclusively uh, a phenomenon of social networks because often the most powerful hierarchical rulers have claimed that they're going to make the world a better place. They don't often succeed in doing that. But I think we human beings like to say that we have high-minded, even utopian ambitions. Uh, The the question is not who has the higher ambition. I think the question is, is who controls whom. Most of the time, it's possible for uh, strong governments to control social networks. 
Uh, and I give the example of Stalin's Soviet Union, a, a system so centralized with, with so much power in the hands of one man that even a chance encounter between two people, not, not even a large crowd, but between two people could arouse Stalin's suspicion and lead to the persecution uh, of one of those people. So we, we realize, I think, looking back, that there's a kind of continuum from that level of incredible centralization uh, and hierarchical rule uh, to, at the other extreme, a completely decentralized uh, system yeah. of the sort that now exists online. I mean, the population of Facebook, if Facebook were a country, is now larger than that of China. It's more than two billion right. people. Right. Um, and although Mark Zuckerberg is uh, the chief executive uh, of the company, uh, the extent of his control over ordinary Facebook uh, users seems to the Facebook users to be minimal. Most people on Facebook don't feel that they're under his control, um, even if their newsfeed does in fact represent or reflect Mark Zuckerberg's carefully contrived algorithm. One last historical question, because you talk about the printing press. Was the printing press as revolutionary at the time as the Internet is now? I remember hearing from a professor of mine many years ago, I don't know if the story's true, you may know, is that one objection to the printing press was someone in authority said, my God, they'll all be able to read. <laughs> well, of course, the, the reality of, of life in, in 1517 uh, when Luther uh, launched his reformation with the help of the printing press was that relatively few people could read and indeed literacy was the preserve of the elite. Uh, one of the unintended consequences of the reformation because it made printed matter available in a way that written manuscripts hadn't been was that literacy surged. Any country that embraced uh, Luther's teaching or Calvin's for that matter, any of the countries that went Protestant saw their literacy rate rapidly rise and uh, and that in that sense the reformation had all kinds of unintended consequences because of course when you can read one book you can read any book and it wasn't long before the printing presses of Europe and later Europe's colonies in the new world were producing everything conceivable uh, tracts on science tracts on political philosophy uh, all kinds of different things were being published so that by the 18th century the printing press wasn't just responsible for spreading uh, religious teaching, it was spreading every conceivable kind yeah. of knowledge. Uh, and that was, I think, one of the greatest revolutions uh, in all history. Every single major idea between 1500 and 1800 is an idea generated and spread by the network of printing presses. Yeah. Yeah, this book we're talking about with its author, Neil Ferguson, is The Square and the Tower, Networks and Power. All right, let's jump right into today. I'm inside the uh, a beltway. I'm in the swamp. I guess maybe I'm a swamp creature, have been for a while. <laughs> uh, but uh, and anyway, uh, there is a debate going on, and I've been involved in it. I've talked to both sides. I've talked to the people at Facebook. I've talked to people at the White House. Um, there's uh, there there's uh, thoughts about regulating Facebook, treating it like a utility. Is this an example of the tower trying to get control of the square? Well, I think it is. It's a classic case, really. Since it became clear to people in the swamp in Washington, D.C., that Facebook and companies like it, Twitter, Google, are now the most important media companies in practice, in America, we've had a pretty heated debate about what to do about that. Now, people on the left, as you know, are attracted to antitrust and would like to break up the big companies. 
Uh, I don't think that idea is going very far, uh, and not just because the Democrats are out of power. I don't think it gets very far in the courts. If you try antitrust against Amazon, Jeff Bezos is going to say, show me the harm I do consumers, and I'll break up my company. The case won't, won't last two days. The other issue, which I think Republicans need to concern themselves with, is really whether you have a level regulatory playing field. Because at the moment, you don't. At the moment, under mid-1990s legislation, going back to the Communications and Decency Act, Section 230, there is an exemption granted to the big technology companies. They are classified as network platforms, not publishers of content, and therefore they're not liable for the content that appears on their platforms. And that has given a massive advantage to Facebook and Google versus conventional publishers of content, because in effect, they aggregate everybody else's content and collect the advertising revenue for posting it. Now, I think that's indefensible. You don't need to be for and against or against regulation on this issue. It's just a question of whether we have consistent regulation. And I think 2016 revealed the dangers of having this exemption, because essentially anything went on Facebook. Fake news went on Facebook. The Russians were able to advertise uh, on Facebook in ways that I think had at least some impact on the public conversation. Uh, and I, I don't see how we can allow that to happen in future elections. Right now, Facebook and, and the other tech companies say, we can fix this. We'll self-regulate. Don't you, need, you, don't you do anything, Washington? But I think if politicians simply accept that self-regulation is going to be enough, they're in for a big surprise because Facebook, Google, and the others are really much too powerful now to be left simply to regulate themselves. The reason I asked about aspirational earlier, again, we're talking Neil Ferguson and the book uh, The Square and the Tower, is uh, this quote, which is uh, right here in the, in the in the in the in your media material? I thought once everybody could speak freely and exchange information and ideas, the world was automatically going to be a better place. I was wrong about that, and that's from a co-founder of Twitter. And there are many things said by Mark Zuckerberg and others, um, similar positions about that. That opening up this communication this worldwide square um, and letting people talk to people all over the place would uh, would obviously uh, reaffirm common humanity and make the world better, not clear that it has. Is that right? I think we were told, uh, going right back to the 1990s, that if everybody was connected, everything would be awesome. That was the Kool-Aid that uh, was served up on a regular basis in Silicon Valley. And we still hear it because it's a regular theme of Mark Zuckerberg's speeches that he's building a global community that will solve all the world's problems. And the point I'm trying to make in the square in the tower is be careful what, we, what you wish for, because if you create giant online social networks, you should expect anything but a happy, clappy global community. History tells you that you're much more likely to get polarization, uh, crazy stuff going viral. Uh, network attacks of the sort that we saw in 2016 on both the Democratic Party and the Trump campaign. So I think it's naive to imagine that if we're all connected, the world is just going to magically solve climate change and inequality and all the rest of it. It's much more likely, in my view, that creating a public sphere like this is going to destabilize democracy unless we do something about it. The square and the tower. Um raises some very interesting questions about uh, contemporary issues as well as a great history lesson. I think Ferguson is a magnificent teacher. Some problem interfered with our conversation at that point, so we had to leave it there. Uh, we may uh, wish to conclude it uh, at a later date. 
Please feel free to share the podcast on all your social media pages. Follow me on Twitter at William J. Bennett. And you can find me on Facebook. Just search Bill Bennett and like the page. Thanks for listening. We'll talk next week.